Hello, you are listening to Practicing Gospel. I'm David Rayburn. From my observation, and from what I have read, and what I have heard, much of what seems to be the motivating and extensive engagement of the Christian right in politics is the deep-seated fear that Christianity is losing ground in its dominance and control of both the culture and politics in the United States. This fear is rooted in reality. Christianity is not keeping pace with the growth of the population so that the gap between the number of Christians and the number of non-Christians is getting larger. In addition, traditional Christian churches across the theological and political spectrum are in decline and hundreds of churches each year are closing. Fear of the loss of Christian dominance consequently has created an agenda of many on the Christian right to try to stem the tide of this loss. Part of the experience of that loss has been felt especially where there are privileged oversteppings of the boundaries of religious freedom that Christians have enjoyed for so long. Increasingly, other than Christian groups are finding the courage to speak out and sensing the decline of Christianity and its dominance feel more empowered to do so. These groups are demanding that forums be given for the expression of their own views and that Christians are required to stay within the boundaries of religious freedom. These events have created a climate of confusion about what the boundaries are and what is and isn't permissible. It has also caused resistance and a counterattack, especially by the Christian right. Some have been active in wanting to create a specifically Christian America which involves uh, seeking to restrict and overturn or to alter religious freedom and plurality in the United States. Others have argued that their own religious liberties and rights are being violated and suppressed and taken away. To help us bring some under better understanding and clarity to the situation and to help us sort things out, we are turning to Dr. Melissa Rogers, Dr. Rogers earned her Juris Doctorate at the University of Pennsylvania Law School and has received honorary doctorates from the Divinity School at Wake Forest and the John Leland Center for Theological Studies. She was the Associate General Counsel and then the General Counsel for the Baptist Joint Committee for Religious Liberty, which is an organization that you will be hearing much more about as I go along in this podcast effort. She also served as a special assistant to President Obama and as executive director of the White House for faith-based and neighborhood partnerships during the Obama administration. She is presently visiting professor at Wake Forest University's Divinity School and is a non-resident senior fellow at the Brookings Institute. So needless to say, Dr. Rogers has both the experience and the expertise to guide us. To provide us with a resource for navigating our way in these troubled religious freedom and plurality waters, Dr. Rogers has written a book, Faith in American Public Life. So this is what we're going to be talking about today. And as a bit of an aside, even though I hadn't gotten to meet Melissa before, I have two connections with her. Her dear mother is in the journey class I attended at First Baptist Church, or that I do attend at First Baptist Church, Asheville. And Melissa is close friends with Dr. Carrie Newman. Melissa acknowledges that Carrie was instrumental in helping her bring this book to fruition. 
Carrie and I were colleagues in the religion department at Palm Beach Atlantic College. So welcome, Melissa. Thank you for coming in here today. Thank you so much. It's great to be with you. So why don't we begin by letting you kind of tell your own spiritual journey, especially as that led you into your involvement with the Baptist Joint Committee uh, and also with your uh, involvement with the Obama administration and uh, in writing the book. Great. Well, I grew up in a Baptist home and in the pews of Baptist churches, and there I obviously learned a lot about the Bible and the gospel, and I learned about the Baptist commitment to religious freedom as well, as reflected both in the Bible and in our First Amendment and other religious liberty protections in American law. So I heard from rich voices all throughout my childhood. I think about hearing uh, the words of Reverend John Leland, who was a Baptist pastor at the founding of our country, saying, say that the fondness of magistrates to foster Christianity has done it more harm than all the persecutions ever did. And I remember hearing the words of Martin Luther King, Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, saying, the church is neither the master nor the servant of the state, it is the conscience of the state. And of course, that's what religion is at its best. So all those teachings help to inform my understanding, not only of my faith, but of my citizenship. And that ended up through a long and twisty road to take me to the Baptist Joint Committee and then eventually to the White House to work there. And I can't be you know thankful enough for everyone who taught me along the way. The list is very long. Uh, it includes my parents, um, as you mentioned. Also includes people like James Dunn, uh, the former executive director of the Baptist Joint Committee, and Brent Walker, who was there as well when I worked there. And um, also grateful for their continuing work with Amanda Tyler and Holly Holman and so many other good folks. What would you say is the um, or was the motivating interest or concern that you had in wanting to write the book? Well, I would say there are three. One is that I wanted to try to clear up some misunderstandings in this area. You were referring to some of those in your introduction. So many times we find that religious people in the United States will say things like, and I just heard it earlier today by, I think, the, you know, one of our politicians saying religion has been kicked out of the public square. The Supreme Court has kicked religion out of the public square, to put a more fine point on it. Or they'll say the president is being limited and can't talk about his or her faith. Or that our public schools should be by law, religion-free zones. Now that can come from two directions. People who are pressing the First Amendment far beyond what it says, um, and people who are thinking that the First Amendment places that kind of black and white limit on our public schools. So none of those things is true. We, the Supreme Court has not kicked religion out of the public square. Uh, the Supreme Court does generally limit the government and says the government can't promote religion, but it also says the government has to protect religious individuals and institutions in expressing their faith. 
presidents can talk about their faith just like they can talk about the way they grew up or their favorite um, hobbies or their families and their educational experiences. Just as John Paul Stevens noted that we understand when a, someone like a president speaks that there are personal views embedded in uh, a governmental setting and that that's okay. Um, we also know that religious expression has not been kicked out of our public schools. Students can pray over their lunch. They can pray during class. Um, as long as they're not disruptive, they can pray with groups uh, in between class times. So these are all misunderstandings. And I really wanted to try to clear up some of those very basic matters, first and foremost, so that we could not be fighting over things that are just not true. <laughs> um, and instead, focus our attention on things that maybe are real issues of debate. The second reason I wrote the book is because I'm very concerned about hostility toward and attacks on religious minorities, including in the United States. And as we know, we've seen hate crimes against uh, various communities, including Jewish communities and Muslim and Sikh communities, soar. And that's something that really needs our attention. So I'm hoping to move more people from the sidelines of those issues to solidarity with groups that are being attacked. And then finally, I have some concerns about that are related, but somewhat different about religious freedom and religious pluralism and concern about efforts to read the First Amendment differently than we have in the past and some of the consequences that that would have. So those are the three reasons that I wrote the book. Well, as I, as I understand it, the basis upon which the court makes judgment about issues are kind of five components, and you can clarify me on this, but the first being uh, the sixth article in the Constitution, the second being uh, the two clauses uh, in the First Amendment, uh, the Establishment Clause or the Free Exercise Clause, and then also the three Reconstruction Amendments, but specifically the first article of the 14th Amendment. Uh, and then I guess finally, the Supreme Court's decision in the 1940s that said that uh, I guess the incorporation doctrine uh, that applies to all the states as well as to the federal government. Kind of help us understand that a little bit. Yeah, yeah, you you get you get an A plus for tripping through all those things. <laughs> um, so yes, the uh, the article that you mentioned in the Constitution th that prohibits religious tests on public office is very important and often overlooked. It was the only mention of religion in the Constitution before we added those uh, amendments that we know so well that you then be began describing. The First Amendment it contains the, both the No Establishment Clause and the Free Exercise Clause. It says Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. And both those clauses are, require a little unpacking, and I'm sure we'll do that as we continue our conversation. And then uh, the post-Civil War amendments that you mentioned, principally the 14th Amendment, had the effect of applying the First Amendment's religion clauses and, and other clauses 
to the states and to localities, cities and counties and the like, after the Civil War. And so that's important to remember. The First Amendment, as originally drafted, only applied to the federal government. But because we have the 14th Amendment uh, that applies um, many clauses in those in that First Amendment, well, the whole First Amendment to states and localities, we then have protections that are in those amendments that we can benefit from if states or cities or counties, you know, trespass across those boundaries. So um, all those things are really important and they're in our federal constitution. And of course, we also have state constitutions that sometimes come into play and religious liberty guarantees then. Secondarily, we have um, statutes, laws that Congress passes that aren't constitutional amendments, but just federal statutes and state statutes that contain things like civil rights protections. And the 1964 Civil Rights Act would be a good example. So we have a wealth of legal resources to pull from and that provide interlocking protections for religious liberty. And depending what issue we're talking about, we're looking at different facets of that law. Okay. Give us an example of uh, something that uh, particularly you talked about, you were concerned about um, the hostilities uh, against religious minorities. Um, and also uh, you talked about a, uh, a dangerous mix uh, between overstepping, but also um, the uh, extension mm-hmm. of government into promoting religion. Mm-hmm. Uh, give us some examples of what you mean by that. Okay. So first of all, um, the hostility against religious minorities in our own country, what we've seen recently are, uh, by all measures, increasing hate crimes against religious institutions and individuals. And these would be instances that we all remember, uh, like the attack on the Tree of Life Synagogue in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania last year. That was a tragic attack and and the most deadly attack on a Jewish institution, I think, in the country's history. And we've also seen almost on a daily basis in the New York, New Jersey area for a period of time, attacks on people who were simply walking down the street wearing a yarmulke. And uh, for obvious reasons, that is incredibly disturbing. We also have seen a terrible number of attacks on Muslim Americans on mosques. Just last week, I think it was, there was a drive-by shooting at a mosque during one of their holidays. And because of the pandemic, there were not many people inside. But had there been many people inside, there could have been many deaths because of this drive-by shooting. And this was in Indianapolis. So this, these are some of the things that we're really concerned about. And we've got to react in a way that will help prevent these. And when they do happen, these hate crimes, to prosecute them to the full extent of the law. And one easy step I think we can all take there is to hold our government officials accountable, not only for protecting against hate crimes, to put hate crime laws at the state level into effect, and also to hold them accountable when they or any of their colleagues would be engaging in fear-mongering on factors like faith or religion, faith, religion, ethnicity, race, 
sexual orientation, any number of factors. We cannot afford any kind of leader engaging in this kind of fear-mongering. Anyone, but especially any leader, because their voices are amplified. So I think we need to really hold our government officials accountable in many ways, including on uh, not only not fear-mongering, but actually sending out positive messages about the diverse nature of our country and how that's been a strength, and visiting diverse institutions, including diverse houses of worship and speaking to diverse religious communities. So that's one thing I'm concerned about. Some examples of other things that I'm concerned about, I'll just mention a few because unfortunately the list of my concerns is rather long at the moment. But one thing I'm concerned about is a kind of selective approach to free exercise protection. And let me just give one example that I think we've seen out of the Trump administration recently. There's been a very generous granting of religious exemptions for what you might call conservative religious groups, including conservative Christian groups. And we can take those one by one and see whether those are appropriate or inappropriate. That's not my point right here. One of my points here is to say at the same time that there's been that generous recognition of religious exemptions for religious conservatives, the Trump Department of Justice has prosecuted people who were providing humanitarian assistance to undocumented people at our nation's southwest border and doing so for religious reasons. These religious people are leaving out water in the deserts because often undocumented people will die in the deserts if they cannot get water, for example. And they were prosecuted for doing so. And they made the assertion, which is sincere and bona fide, that this was coming from their religious faith, that they needed to do these things because of their own religious convictions. And instead of taking those convictions seriously and treating them in the way that they had treated the conservative religious convictions, these people were prosecuted. Another example, the um, Trump administration has asserted to asserted that it can take property to build its border wall, and it uh, asserted the right to take the property of a Catholic diocese, even though that diocese said, we do not want to give up our property, and we in fact object for religious reasons for the taking of our property for this border wall. And those concerns went unheard by the Trump administration. So I think what we have there are some examples of a selective approach that's very troubling. Religious liberty has to be for everyone instead of just for some who believe the same things we believe. Now, let me be sure and say that An administration does not have to grant every religious liberty claim to be consistent. There are judgment calls that are made, and, you know, sometimes some free exercise claims cannot be granted for various reasons. But what is striking to me is just to see how dramatically different cases have been treated depending on whether they support the current administration's policy agenda or conflict with the current administration's policy agenda. Well, kind of clarify for me, because um, I know, like in a, any given city, um, if they want to put an interstate through, 
right. uh, they, they get to do that. And if right. that means taking your church <laughs> and its property, uh, that seems to be involved with that. Right. Uh, how would that be different than the, the wall uh, and giving up property for the wall? Well, I think you're right that this does happen um, quite often. My concern is the dramatically different treatment of a, a concern that would be a free exercise or concern that would seem to be aligned with the administration's agenda and one that would not. So whether in the end the religious concern is um, accommodated or not, what we see is an approach that just does not seem to take the concern seriously and turns it away immediately if it conflicts with the Trump administration's agenda versus a very solicitous approach toward conservative religious exemption claims. So I think it's, it's you know, certainly there can be situations where claims would be turned away for bona fide reasons, but are they taken seriously and treated seriously across the board instead of differently, depending on what kind of political valence they have? Okay. Well, in, in what other ways do, do average folks have misconceptions? Uh, and what are those specific misconceptions that you would like us to know about? Right. I think one you often come across is that the First Amendment bars religious expression in American public life, something I said earlier. And what's interesting about that is that the First Amendment does not restrain religious individuals and institutions. It actually restrains government. So the government can't promote religion, but as I said earlier, the government has to protect the religious expression of individuals and institutions. The only time where it gets a little fuzzy there is when the government would seem to be sponsoring religious expression. So for example, the court has ruled that you cannot have a high school graduation ceremony or a middle school graduation ceremony where the public school puts prayer on the program and invites somebody to pray on behalf of the school. So in those cases, it is a religious individual who's not a public school official speaking and offering the prayer, but it's still unconstitutional because the government is organizing and orchestrating that prayer. And so that amounts to government support for religion and inevitably picking and choosing among religions. So I think that is often a misunderstanding. People think that the First Amendment reaches out and just bars any religious expression if it's occurring in a way that's publicly visible or publicly heard. And that's just not the case. So you think about it, and, and it's one reason that I put a picture on the cover of my book, but um, it includes the cover of the, the cover picture includes a protest that happened on government property. This protest was about the separation of children from their families at the border. And it was a stand of, of, in this case, a bunch of female clergy that were saying that that's wrong. And they were standing right outside one of the federal agencies that was responsible for carrying out this policy of family separation. So I put that there because I wanted to 
make clear that religious people can demonstrate and raise their voices on public property just like any secular group can. And they can, in fact, challenge government on that property if they choose to do so, as these women clergy were doing, just as secular voices can. So there are all kinds of ways in which religious people can play a very robust role in our nation's public life. I live in the Washington, D.C. area, and when we don't have pandemics, on the National Mall, which is really called the, nation, the nation's front yard, we have um, an incredible number of religious observances and protests going on. So those are just some of the ways in which religion plays a very robust role in our nation's public life. And I think those are some of the obvious mistakes and misunderstandings that we have in this country in some quarters. Well, you also talked about um, that even though a, a person is an elected official, uh, right. they still have the right to express their faith. Uh, and, you know, like Jimmy Carter did. Yeah. Uh, and, and certainly my former boss. <laughs> yeah. And other, other presidents have. Yeah. Uh, so kind of talk about that a little bit more. Uh, right. What are the boundaries in that. Right. Yes. And it's good to think about that. Um, so, yes, a couple of examples of, I think many people will remember President Obama singing Amazing Grace at the funeral of Clementa Pickney after the terrible attack on Mother Emanuel Church in South Carolina. And I'm glad that I mentioned that for more than one reason, because when I was talking about hate crimes earlier, we often see hate crimes directed at religious institutions that are also known for some uh, racial or ethnic um, you know, characteristic as well. So we've seen attacks on African-American religious institutions repeatedly. And this heinous attack uh, was one of those. And so we need to be careful and mindful about how racism plays into these uh, religious categories sometimes and does so in this case in a, a terribly deadly way. So, yes, uh, my boss uh, obviously was expressing his own faith in that setting. Uh, I also include in the book other speeches where President Obama talked about his own personal faith, whether it was National Prayer Breakfast or whether it was when he went to a Baltimore mosque. So we're accustomed to that, and that often happens. Now, that doesn't mean that the president has to speak about their faith, uh, Presidents can choose to do so or not. I think whether they choose to do so or not, it's helpful for a president to talk about the role of religion in American public life so that people better understand that role, just as we've been doing today about the laws and the do's and don'ts that apply here. The, some of the boundaries include that the Supreme Court was talking about high-ranking elected officials like a president. If you're going into the post office to buy a roll of stamps and you're at the counter and the post office worker says, I, I'd like you to stay here while I tell you about my faith and I'm going to wait to give you the roll of stamps until you've heard me. That's something different. Um, you know, that's not only a different setting with a worker who we don't normally assume is going to be giving us a full expression of their personal 
beliefs along with a roll of stamps. Um, so that's one boundary that we keep, we need to keep in mind. Another boundary, and this would not be one of law, but I think one of um, the spirit of the law, if you will, would be that when high ranking elected officials talk about their personal faith, it's incumbent on them, in my view, to do so in a way that is consistent with the spirit of religious liberty guarantees. So if a public official would suggest that one faith should be favored over another as a part of the expression of their religious beliefs, then I think that would be very inappropriate. Instead, we need our religious our officials who are talking about their personal faith to make it very clear that they would protect the rights of people of all faiths and none. And so that's that's another important uh, boundary that comes from the spirit of the law, if not the letter. Let's take it um, down from the high offices to the uh, common experiences, uh, like my wife, uh, for instance. Uh, she's a chorus teacher, or was a chorus teacher until today, <laughs> uh, in a public school. Yeah. Uh, in what way does she get to express her faith uh, in that context? Um, and because you had talked about students have, you know, the, the freedom to express themselves. Uh, in what way does a, does a teacher? Right. So I think teachers certainly retain their rights to, uh, you know, pray on school property, if they pray before they teach their class, if they have a, a group that meets of teachers that decide they want to meet for prayer before or after school, that is certainly something permissible. Um, I think also we need to, this isn't a personal religious expression, but we need to recognize that public school teachers can teach about religion in an academic way. And certainly that would enter into the question, I think, when you're teaching singing and chorus and the like, because there are many religiously inflected songs and hymns and anthems. And your wife, I'm sure, has probably already done this, taught about um, let's say, lift every voice and sing, which is often referred to as a, the national anthem of African-Americans in our country, um, where that came from, what it means, and perhaps, you know, even teaching students to sing that song, among other, you know, secular and religious songs that they would sing. So we shouldn't shy away from academic teaching about religion because, frankly, we can't understand our nation or our world without understanding religion. But in the public schools, that teaching needs to be done in an academic fashion, even-handed, not preaching for acceptance of religious ideas, but teaching in an educational way. So like um, if my wife is talking with a student and um, the student says, uh, you've been very kind to me, uh, why? Have you done that? Uh, and my wife says, and this is hypothetical, but yeah. and my wife says, uh, because of my faith, uh, I see you as a creation of God and, and that I'm, uh, as a believer in Jesus Christ, uh, asked to look at people as people, children of God and, and treat people with kindness. 
Uh, she is she free to say that? Is that something as a teacher in a school setting that she can that she can say? Well, I think what what level does your uh, wife teach at? By the way, middle school. Middle school. Okay, so I think that you know, not that it always matters, but I think as children are older, they are more discerning about the fact that their teachers are actually people, <laughs> as opposed to you know, at the lower level, their teachers are almost you know seem like just so outsized figures to them. They're like almost second parents to them and they have a hard time distinguishing between um, a person and, and their personal beliefs and, and the official beliefs that they bring into the classroom. So I think, you know, it certainly seems to me that there's space for, for doing that with students. If one is very clear that, you know, these are my personal beliefs at the same time, I, as a public school teacher, am here to protect people and students of all beliefs, and those are that's part of the thing that we do through our public schools, and we're very dedicated to that notion as well. Okay, okay. Well, throughout your book, you talk about the benefits of religious liberty. Uh, um, kind of talk about that a little bit. What do you see those benefits as being and, and how is that? Right. So there's so many, uh, it's hard to name them all, but I think that our religious liberties law and protections help to strengthen the nation because they make us all equal citizens across different faiths and beliefs. So I think in many cases, we've been able to assimilate people from minority faith traditions in a way that we've seen other countries around the world not be successful in doing. So we have an incredible amount of diversity in our faiths in the United States. And at the same time, we have an incredible amount of peace and, and not, not only peace, but cooperation among people of different faiths and beliefs. And I think that's because we all know that the law guarantees, and it's not always perfectly observed, but the law guarantees that we are all equal citizens before government. Under our constitution, there are no second class faiths. So that allows us to all have confidence that we'll be perfectly observed, uh, equally protected. Now, I said perfectly observed because it's not always perfectly observed, but that's the ideal and that's the promise that we're trying to fulfill. We also uh, profit because we're able to tap the talents of all different people in our country. We have amazing leaders of many different faiths in our country, and that's in part because of religious liberty. Another uh, guarantee, another benefit of these guarantees is that they help to protect the integrity of faith, including the faith that might otherwise be favored by government or promoted by government. And let me just give you one example here. Um, there was a decision out of the Supreme Court last term that dealt with a 32-foot tall cross in Bladensburg, Maryland, that was erected as a war memorial for um, the those who died for our country in World War One. And the question, it sat on public property and was and is supported by public funds. And the question became whether that cross was constitutional or not. Now, 
let's bracket for the moment. The court said that it was constitutional for a variety of reasons, including it's the history behind it and the longstanding nature of the cross. And we can unpack that more if you wish. But right now, what I'd like to do is bracket that decision because the court um, made that decision, not without dissent, but with some more, it was, you know, it wasn't just a 5-4 ruling. It was had some people who come more from the left side and the right side supporting it. What some justices said, however, was that, and this, I'm thinking of Justice Gorsuch and Justice Thomas, said that not only could we have, you know, crosses that had stood for a long period of time for war dead, uh, approved under our constitution, but there was no reason, and I'm just making up this hypothetical, but it flows from the rule that they articulated. There's no reason why the United States government today couldn't erect on the National Mall a 32-foot cross to honor the dead from wars and conflicts in Afghanistan, for example, in Iraq. And, you know, the problem with that is, is at least two reasons. One is, I think we can readily understand why people who are not Christian and whose family members died in those conflicts why those people would not see that cross as honoring their family members because the Latin cross is understood as one of the quintessential symbols of the Christian faith. So that's that's an issue. The other issue is if the government begins to take the preeminent symbol of Christianity, the cross, and say that it is it stands for the sacrifice to our nation, instead of the sacrifice and the resurrection of Jesus Christ and biblical promises of eternal life, then the government begins to distort Christianity and distort the Christian message. So that's just one example of the kind of danger that the faith that would be favored by government might sustain if we allow that kind of interpretation to be embraced. Okay. And so by by having the religious liberty, then we are able to preserve the integrity of of different faiths. Right. Uh, by the way they're treated and the way they're perceived. Right. Uh, and our message, our message has to be an authentic message. If we have our message watered down by government, warped and weakened by government, we cannot propound that message very effectively because we're competing with the government who has a very powerful megaphone to get that message out. And our message is uh, lacks as strong a megaphone. So that can be a very distressing situation for a person of faith. And I've heard people in other countries talk about that, where there is an established faith that is nominally their own faith, but they feel like competes with an authentic message that they're trying to get out. Well, one last thing. Uh, let's take the example uh, just recently uh, where the Supreme Court uh, in a 5-4 uh, decision uh, permitted the governor of California uh, to put restrictions on attendance in religious meetings. Uh, so talk about that situation and your perspective on that. 
Sure. And I'll back up just a minute to say that, you know, the pandemic has obviously presented some novel and important issues. If there were ordinary times, it would be unacceptable for the government to ban in-person gatherings, limit in-person gatherings. Um, But obviously, because of this highly contagious disease, there have been allowances made in terms of balancing public health and religious liberty that would not have been made without the disease. So the Supreme Court has always recognized that states have a kind of police power to regulate issues and conduct for public health. And what the court has also recognized for a long time is that religious liberty rights are not absolute. So how do we balance them during this pandemic? As you said, a case recently went to the Supreme Court and they gave us the first guidance um, on this issue. And the case was brought by South Bay United Pentecostal Church against an order by California Governor Gavin Newsom. Uh, that involves some limits on gatherings, including religious gatherings. So what they were challenging was, is that there were some numerical restrictions on public gatherings to address COVID-19. There were limits on attendance at places of worship to 25% of building capacity or maximum of 100 attendees, whichever is lower. And so this church was coming up on Pentecost Sunday and wanted to have more people in service, one service, uh, then those limits would allow. And they said that there were some, what they claimed to be comparable businesses that were not being limited in this way. So they were saying, look, we can observe physical distancing limits just like some grocery stores or liquor stores. And so we should be able to have people, uh, as many people as we want in a service, just as they are able to have as many people as they want come into their business. And so they that's what they were seeking. And they were seeking a kind of unusual kind of relief, an emergency stay of or an alert, emergency um invalidation of this limit as it implied to them. And the court ruled against them um, by a five to four ruling. Interestingly, the Chief Justice Roberts joined what are often thought to be the more progressive or more liberal justices in ruling against the church in this case. The Chief Justice said in his opinion that this ruling uh, found that the First Amendment's free exercise clause did not appear to be violated by these limits. And he said that, and here I'm going to read a quote from the ruling. He said, similar or more severe restrictions apply to comparable secular gatherings, including lectures, concerts, movie showings, spectator sports, and theatrical performances, where large groups of people gather in close proximity for extended periods of time. And the order exempts or treats more leniently only dissimilar activities, such as operating grocery stores, banks, and laundromats, in which people neither congregate in large groups nor remain in close proximity for extended periods of time. So you can see there that he's focused on the fact that it appears to the majority of the court 
that the California order is treating like things alike and things that are not alike uh, just in different ways. So he was saying that when people are in close proximity to one another indoors for a long period of time, then we have a a higher risk of contagion. And that's partly because of the numbers and partly because of how they're situated and partly because of the fact that when you have that large number of people gathered, you know, they may spread it further in the community. So he was saying we need to be deferential to the view of governors and other government officials who are working with scientists and other public health experts and coming up with, you know, revisions on their standards on a regular basis. So he said, let's be deferential to those people. It appears that this is not a First Amendment violation. Now, four people dissented from that ruling, four justices, and those include um, Justices Alito, Justices Kavanaugh, Gorsuch, and Thomas. And Justice Kavanaugh wrote an opinion uh, for some of those justices saying that actually, uh, in his view, this kind of restriction was discrimination against religion. It treated religion differently than comparable secular activities, including these businesses, the grocery stores, banks, and laundromats and the like. And that the government couldn't prove that it had a narrowly tailored compelling interest for treating houses of worship differently than grocery stores and banks and the like. But he never really engaged with this standard that Robert set out. In other words, that when we have worship services and other secular gatherings where people are in close proximity for long periods of time, then we have a different kind of health risk than we do when people are darting in and out of the grocery store Uh, to get food or going into a bank to do a transaction. So Justice Kavanaugh's opinion really didn't deal with that point that the Chief Justice made, and I'm not sure why. But let me just sum up by saying that this is obviously an important ruling by the Supreme Court. It's, uh, It's one that was made in an emergency setting, so we have to keep that in mind that somewhat affects the legal standards that were used. Uh, But I think it will serve as guidance for some of the lower courts and guidance for policy. I think we'll continue, however, to see debates about what is the right comparator for religious gatherings um, and other gatherings. Is it the grocery store and the bank and the laundromat? Or is it, you know, movies and concerts and lectures and like? So I think that debate will continue. And I think what's really important is that we have policies that certainly do not treat religious gatherings worse than other types of gatherings or target it in any way. We need non-biased policy and law, for sure. Uh, We also need, in my view, you know, public health protections that continue because we're not past the danger mark with this pandemic. Well, you have provided us with an exceptionally helpful resource. Uh, So thank you for your book, and thank you for being on my show today to help us understand this a little bit more. Of course, and thank you for your work. I think these podcasts, including your own, play such a great role in normal times, but especially when we're all locked down and uh, needing a little more um, entertainment and education, you're providing it. 
So thank you for doing that. It's a real honor to be with you. Well, thank you and blessings to you. And blessings on you and your household as well. And congratulations to your wife. Thank you. And thanks to your wife. I taught school for a little while and I had to go find something easier to do. And I, so I went to law school. <laughs> that is the truth. <laughs> and I, w- I would say amen. Yes, you should. <laughs> In my view. So thank you and blessings on you. Well, you are listening to Practicing Gospel. I'm David Rayburn. The music for this episode comes from a clip of a song called Father Let Your Kingdom Come that is on the Porter's Gate Worship Project Work Songs album and used by permission by the Porter's Gate Work Project. You can purchase the album and learn more about the worship project by going to the website theportersgate.com. This show has as its purpose enabling you to hear the voices of the Christian left and about the issues and concerns that are of interest to the Christian left. Practicing Gospel Inc. is a nonprofit organization. If you like what you've heard, go to my website at practicing-gospel.blubrry.net to subscribe and hopefully to donate. Your participation will help me continue this effort. Thank you for listening and for your support. Blessings. May the words from my mouth speak your-